You're listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer with Gina Militia, one of Australia's leading portrait celebrity and lifestyle photographers. With over 25 years' experience in the industry, Gina is a pro photographer who regularly travels the world shooting for some of the country's top magazines and advertisers. She is author of four best-selling books on photography, runs workshops and mentors aspiring photographers all around the world. In conversation with journalist, interviewer and budding amateur photographer Valerie Koo, Gina reveals what it takes to build a successful photography business, provides a sneak peek into life behind the lens and talks about her tips and techniques to get the perfect shot. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 286 of So You Want to Be a Photographer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Gina Militia. How are you, Gina? I'm great, Val. How are you going? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited about this week's topic, which is travel and street photography with your guest, our guest, David Dusherman. Yeah. And um, he's going to be talking to us about all sorts of fantastic experiences and techniques that he's going to share. But before we get on to David, um, what have you been up to? What have you been up to? Val, I've just cooked the best soup ever in the whole world. And I'm very proud of myself. (laughs) Yes, could I? (laughs) What kind of soup? Chicken soup. And aside from that, I have also been organising. I've been doing a bit of um, uh, cinemagraphs, which are moving, like a combination of movies and still images so that you can get, so you combine a still with a moving image and you can, like, you just might have a tiny part of the image that is moving. This is the next big thing in advertising. I'm starting to see it used a lot more in mainstream uh, advertising and it's very effective because if you think about it now you've got um, so many billions of images uh, uploaded every day so how do we stop the scroll to get someone's attention particularly for an advertiser like you know if you're working in commercial photography and so I think this is a technique that photographers should uh, start experimenting with and learn to embrace I'm going to be doing some tutorial for the goal community on exactly how to do this but I think it's a really uh, effective way and another way as a photographer that you can value add to your clients and I can see this like often when it starts in advertising uh, mainstream it'll it'll trickle down to the domestic market at some point so it's something that um, you could uh, introduce to your portrait clients as well and family photography I think it'd be a really cool way to have that edge on all the other photographers because of course if you'd create something uh, new and exciting and different they're going to want to share it with their friends and everyone's going to go wow what what's this cool idea that you've done here's this still image and then there might be uh, the hairs blowing in the image or there might be a bit of smoke a, a wisp of smoke uh, puffing up some from, from somewhere or I've been using it for my advertising shots where it might be the cast shot is static but the background is moving there's so many different things you can do it's really cool I love it and I do love my soup too Val <laughs> All right, fantastic. So we've got um, – we just want to do a big shout-out to someone who has left us a five-star review and has entitled it My All-Time Favourite Photography Podcast. However, 
when we copied this over to our notes, we forgot to put the name of the person. I so very sorry is. about that. It's Judy. Oh, go. Judy, who's a uh, – yep, read the thing and I'll, I'll tell you Okay, who brilliant. All right, fantastic. So Judy has left us a review and said, when I was looking for a good photography podcast, I passed So You Want to Be a Photographer up at first, thinking that I really needed to support a podcast that was made in the USA. <laughs> I know, that's pretty bad, huh? But something made me keep coming back to this podcast, so I'm thankful I did. I've listened for years now. The time, photographic knowledge, an effort that Gina and Valerie both put into this podcast is amazing. Gina has a way of teaching that you are able to understand quickly and she is such an inspiration, not to mention a fabulous photographer. Listening to Gina and Valerie conversing is like hanging out with your best buds. And not only do I get great information, but I get laughs too. The podcast led me to Gina's gold community as well, which is a real gold mine of mentoring and education by Gina. Check it out if you really want to take your photography to the next level. These ladies are the real deal. Thank you both for all the time you put into the podcast and indeed all that you do for the photographic community. Love. And it's from Judy Bruno, who of course is just such an awesome photographer and I love seeing her stuff on Facebook. So thank you, Judy, for taking the time to leave us a review. Really appreciate it. And of course, if anyone else has some time to leave us a review or rating on uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast uh, provider you use, we'd really be grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings. So Judy mentioned that she joined the Goal Community. If you're interested in taking your photography to the next level with the Goal Community, have a listen to this. This podcast is brought to you by the Gold Community. One of the things I love is mentoring the incredible photographers who are in my gold community. I recently asked Kerry Setch about how much the gold community has had an impact on her photography. It's just level upon level upon level. So when I first started, I really didn't understand even portraiture and lighting at all. So to learn those basics, but then to push myself and for you to push me in that to... um, to uh, go that next level has been really incredible. So as well as the support and connections that have developed within the community. So um, yeah, it's been really good in the access to resources. If you'd like to find out more about the Gold community, just go to ginamilitia.com and click on join the community. All right, so our guest this week, David Dushemin. Tell us about David, Gina. Oh, well, David's an amazing photographer, well-known yeah. in the photographic community, quite a pro- prolific writer, and his writing is deep, foul. He doesn't just faff on about how to, you know, change backgrounds. on a fo- You know, it's all deep stuff which makes you think about photography. I actually really enjoy his commentary and um intelligent uh, approach to photography and uh, he's an amazing photographer he's also a world and humanitarian assignment photographer uh, as I said best-selling author and uh, he also leads international workshops and uh, he's 
based in Canada and um, he's like, he, he's, he, he has the most amazing life. Like, you know, last time I yeah. looked on his Instagram, he's in Venice uh, when they were yeah. having the floods. And so a lot of people mm. chose not to go because obviously the waterline and what an inconvenience mm. your feet are going to get wet. But like there he <laughs> is, he's there capturing the most amazing image and get this 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 really excited me he had a background originally as a comedian and you know how obsessed obsessed i am with comedians and the process Mm -hmm. so obviously we had to talk about that and then we got into uh you know a really deep discussion about what it is about a photo that stops you in your tracks Mm. and it's like this is the kind of stuff that meaty uh you know intelligent conversation that i love and he talks about where he finds his inspiration how to develop your style he walks us through uh his thought process in finding a shot so you know we talk about this as travel and street photography you don't have to travel anywhere to get great photos so as you travel go to the next suburb or the next town uh, where, where it's foreign to you and then use mm. these techniques to scope out the location and find those shots so we really get into the the nitty-gritty of working a shot not just turning up and and you know spraying and praying but what he does how he gets into uh, finding that shot working on it and you know whether he needs to go back to that same location we also talk about perfectionism and um you know the importance of uh, letting go of that perfectionism and that that the work needs to start ugly and then you work (laughs) it to get better which I love that whole notion and uh, and lots of tips for the listeners at home on how to improve their photography a great like fantastic he's just so much knowledge in this episode that David so generously shares so shall we have a listen absolutely here we go with David Duchemin David Dusherman, welcome to the show. How are you going? Thank you, Gina. I'm so well. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm very excited to chat to you today. Before we start, the first question I ask my guests is, where in the world are you? I uh, We live in beautiful Nanus Bay on Vancouver Island, which is the far west coast, actually just off the west coast of Canada. Amazing. And uh, how often are you on a plane in a year like you do travel a lot I thought I traveled a lot but you like really get out there a lot (laughs) yeah you know the answer to that uh last year was too much and uh so I have I've actually dialed my travel down considerably I kind of got to a point where I felt like I had just done so much of it that I was burning out and I also kind of felt like you know we're living in an age where we're increasingly conscious of our carbon footprint and I made this decision that uh, if I was going to travel, I was going to travel fewer times a year, get on less planes. Because let's face it, that's the hardest part of traveling. I mean, put me in the dodgiest place on the planet. It's the plane (laughs) that's the hardest work. And I just, so I have actually started traveling considerably less. When I go, I go for longer. So instead of these one or two week trips, now I'm doing four to six week trips. But I'm doing a lot less, mostly because I think I've just, I need to slow down down and you know if you're traveling that much you make a million photographs you don't have time to do anything yeah. with the photographs so I have dialed things back a little bit and I think I'm finding that this saner pace of things actually very creatively liberating 
Four to six weeks, that sounds delightful. I, I cap out at, at uh, 10 to 14 days. Uh, what does four to six weeks travel look like for you when you um, immerse yourself in a country? How does that look? Well, it, I mean, usually that four to six weeks includes, you know, for example, if I were going to Italy, I would probably spend uh, one or or two weeks of that somewhere else, you know, maybe in transit in London, which is a town I love and spending a week there kind of helps me get, get adjusted to the jet lag. Uh, the West Coast of Canada is a long way from everything and uh, especially in terms of time zones. So that's kind of nice. But I have long advocated that that we need to be in a place long enough to get bored. And that's not always a luxury that we have. But if you're in a place like India, so many people go to India for a week or two at most, and they see everything, which in my way of looking at things is kind of the equivalent of seeing nothing, really. You you tick a lot of boxes, but you don't get to sit in a place uh, for long stretches of time and get to know people and become familiar enough that you can truly see. You know, we all know how to use a camera, but seeing a place, really experiencing a place, I think you've got to be there long enough that you get a little bit bored, that the low-hanging fruit is not quite so much in your face and you're seeing past it and you're seeing things with maybe a little more depth or a little more nuance. So I like to move into a place wherever I am and just just be there, you know, I'll go, I'll find my place for morning coffee or chai or whatever, and I'll go for a long walk and then I'll come back and I'll, I'll do a little bit of writing or whatever when in the middle of the day when the light is not as favorable and then I'll go back out and I just repeat this kind of thing day in and day out, go back to the same places, say hello to the same people. I even go so far, most places I wear the same shirt, Gina, and it's not because I don't like doing my laundry. I mean, I buy three or four of the same shirt, but when you go to the same place, they're used to seeing tourists and they're... You know, but when you go every day and they see the guy in the same blue shirt with the same blue hat and the same blue jeans, they start to recognize you. You know, they don't remember your face, maybe, but they remember the same blue shirt. And and I just put in the time because I can't three, four days when people are starting to pack up to go to the next place. I'm only just starting to kind of get the dust off and get my creative juices flowing. So I need those longer times. And maybe it's three weeks in one place or three weeks in another. But um, the this idea that we're just going to rush off for a week and then rush back, to me, that doesn't benefit. It doesn't give me the fruit that I need. That's so interesting that you say, you talk about that low-hanging fruit, uh, because it's so true that, you know, often as photographers, we take ourselves to a new place and it might be to the next town. It doesn't need to be on the other side of the world. And suddenly sure. it's the shock of the new. Everything around you is, wow, look at that bridge and have a look at this alleyway and this person here on the corner. And you, you feel so inspired and then you might go back there and it's like, eh, there's nothing here anymore. So, and then in everyday life, we're, we're, we're in a place and often photographers say, I can't, there's nothing to photograph here in my town because, and yet someone else will come in and just take a million photos that you never saw. How, how do we as photographers, what, what do you do to, uh, to, to overcome that? Is that the, the boredom factor, just, just sitting quietly till something presents itself? 
Well, it certainly can be. I, th- I think we need to be very conscious of ourselves because, as you rightly pointed out, we go to a new place and we see these amazing things and uh, you can it, maybe it's only two weeks and suddenly those things are not so amazing. If we can... If we can do both, you know, think just because something is new and exotic doesn't make it a great photograph. But if we can do both, if we can show up in a place and, you know, I teach this what I call a visual inventory, you show up and with that excitement and with that novelty and the, the um, y- you know, you're just you're looking everywhere. Everything's exotic. Write those things down. Keep track. Remember how you felt about that. But just because it's the first time you're seeing it doesn't make the resulting photograph uh, particularly compelling. In fact, very often we just take the most obvious, you know, the, the first angle we see at the time of day we see it in the weather that we see it without the acknowledgement that, you know, in two weeks from now, I may have seen this from a very different perspective. I may have ex- found that there's a stronger light to express what I want to express about this place at a different time of day, or I may find that fog is what I want to photograph this in. And so I think it's it's both. It's keeping that excitement about the place and the way that you saw it at first and just went, wow, look at that. But then holding that in the left hand while the right hand is kind of, you know, watching the the calendar and going, okay, let's put the time in. Let's keep going back and let's see if we can see this in different ways. And I was just thinking about this this morning. Someone was asking me a similar question about this idea that, you know, someone comes to your town and they see it as amazing. And they I, I, for example, I'm not that interested in my own hometown. I love where I live. I think it's beautiful, but I'm not interested in saying anything about it photographically. So I very seldom photograph here. And it's not that I don't know how to use my camera when I'm home. It's not that I don't see this place for the beautiful place it is. I just look at photography as a way for me to express things and explore things. And when I'm here, I don't want to do it with my camera. I want to do it in other ways. And so I don't I think the low hanging fruit that I refer to is, you know, when you get to a place and you really are interested in it photographically, putting the time in. And if home is the place where you put the camera on the shelf and you only photograph friends and family in your daily life, I think that's okay. I I don't think there's anything wrong with the fact that some people just want to photograph when they go to India or Africa because home is not that exciting. It's not that you don't see it. It's just that it doesn't interest you. And I think that's okay. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. So when you're when you're settling into a place, uh, you're saying, how long does it take you before you get that first shot? And, and what, what? how are you working it? What is it that you're doing? Are you going back to the same location time and time again at different times of the day and trying those new angles? Are you working it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can go to a place and say, oh, I've seen it. You know, I've been there. I've seen that. But the reality is you haven't seen it in in that light. You haven't seen it at that moment with those particular people. You haven't even seen it in the same frame of mind that you are today as you were, for example, yesterday when maybe you were a little tired from the jet lag or you'd, you'd eaten something dodgy and you weren't in the best frame of, you know, frame of mind because you were sort of thinking about being closer to your hotel room. Or So, I, yes, when I go to a place, I I mean, I get out as quickly as I can because I'm like everyone else. As much as I'm excited about it, I'm also kind of nervous that I'm not going to be able to pull this off, that I probably made my last good photograph. And what am I doing here? And, you know, it's the, I don't know where I'm going. So I need to grab my camera as quick as I can and just put that all behind me and just go for a walk. 
And my everyday look ex- looks exactly like that. I pick up the camera and I just start walking. And very often I will split my time between going back to those places that I saw that I thought, oh, I want to try that again. I want to see if there's something different going on there. I want to see if the light is different because, you know, there were some visual assets that I thought were really exciting. Um, and then the other half of my time is spent pushing myself out of what can be very quickly become a rut. And that's the going to the same place over and over again and thinking, oh, well, I got a good picture here yesterday. Maybe I'll get a, a good picture here t- tomorrow or today. I like to push myself out of that and go, let's just take a right where we've never taken a right before. Let's take a left where, you know, we, we, we assume there's nothing down there, but you just never know. And so I kind of try to mix it up. I try to keep it I go back to the same places over and over again, but I also try to see a little bit more. If I haven't explored one area of town, well, maybe I do that in the afternoon when things are, the lights maybe not that great, but it's uh, a good opportunity for me just to get out and wander without any obligation to photograph or any expectation that I'm going to come back with three great photographs. So I just, I go and I, I photograph and you make a million sketch images and you see what you see and you you know, when you get tired, you sit down and you talk to someone or you buy a cup of tea from a, a roadside seller. And very often it's those little interactions that lead somewhere. They invite you into their home or they, you know, they introduce you to their father or something. And soon you're making portraits and thinking this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> All I did was stop for a cup of chai. So it's like it's the accidental tourist, which I love. And it's something that I do because often people ask, so how much research have you done? for this place that you're going i'm like i don't know none well why'd you go there and it's like well i looked at the name it sounded interesting so i thought i'll just head here now sometimes Mm -hmm. it works and sometimes it doesn't but i you know i don't want to know what's there and what to expect because then i find i'll end up going to the you know the postcard spots and getting the same shot as everyone else I'd like to I love that idea of turning a corner and discovering oh my god look what's here and finding Mm. it on your own I think it so much depends on why we photograph you know if you're a if you're a stock photographer and you're just out there you know just cramming to get all the the stock images then you probably want to do some research and you probably want to you know be a little bit more intentional about being in that place at that but I actually I don't want to be where all the other photographers are and part of the reason I do this is the discovery and the exploration of completely new things and so I'm like you I don't do much research I don't I have it's been years since I bought a Lonely Planet book I want to show up and I want to I want to do enough research that I end up in the best part of town because I want to be able to just leave my hotel and walk so Usually I will go to, you know, the the old part of town. If I go to Delhi, I would want to spend my time in old Delhi because that's what intrigues me. Yeah. Um, so you have to do enough research to put yourself at the, the best, uh, give yourself the best shot. But after that, for me, all bets are off. I just want to wander and be delighted by this. Oh, you know, you turn the corner. It's, oh, my God, look at that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those are my best days when I see something that I just that that I haven't seen on Instagram. If I can get a shot I haven't seen on Instagram, that's what thrills me. You know, and you don't see those around the corner that you just accidentally stumble into. You see those in the Lonely Planet. You got to go here lists. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing how that just going two blocks away from a hot spot and suddenly there's no one there, there, there aren't any tourists and you discover this whole other world just by moving 
two blocks. So imagine if you went to the next town along or two towns away. Uh, th- there's so much out there. It's so astonishing how how tourists and I, you know, it's it, there's a bit of snobbery in here, uh, yeah. me, me just saying it, but tourists and travelers are not that different, except I think they differ in their willingness to go off the beaten track and and the expectations that we have as tourists are, I'm going to go here, I'm going to see this thing, I'm going to tick the box, I'm going to move on, whereas the traveler, you can go where uh, the other tourists usually go, but at a time when they don't go. If you're in Venice, go to St. Mark's Square when it's two in the morning or after everyone's gone off to the Hard Rock Cafe or gone back to the cruise ship, you can go to the same places at a different time or you can just go that one street or two streets off because tourists are scared to death they're going to miss the thing. And so they all glom together and, you know, go from one spot to another and they tick their things. And I think that's fine. I don't mean it to sound snobby, but if you're the photographer that revels in the wonder of the unknown and you want to shoot things that are just different and you're going to have to find different places or different times in which to photograph yeah venice is a good one because it's like that's uh, such a, a popular location so it's just packed in the daytime but it looks so different at two in the morning and also at dawn you can have venice to yourself for like nearly an hour it's just you and the bakers wandering the oh. streets it's beautiful it's so good. And, and you know, people come in and they leave and they, they confine themselves to the strip between Piazza San Marco and the Rialto Bridge. But there's so much real life going on everywhere else in Venice, which is such an infinitely walkable city. And as soon as, you know, people started, I was there during these historic floods that, that they saw. had in, it, Amazing. in November. Yeah. It was, it was mind blowing. And, you know, people were canceling trips left, right and center and not, and rightly so, I, I completely understood. But part of me was saying, oh my gosh, to, I, I can't imagine having missed this yeah. astonishing, you know, this astonishing thing. And it's, I, I would go to that a hundred times. I mean, I loved it. I had a wonderful, it was really challenging, but I would never go, for example, during, during carnival. I just see nothing. I I don't, I don't want to take pictures of people in masks. You know, there's no human connection there. There's, so I've just recognized that's not my thing, but Venice in the winter, any other time when, you know, when the tourists are, are fewer, it's beautiful. And I think any place in the world, you can find both the places where the tourists are not going, where real life is happening. Um, that's not to say real life doesn't happen where the tourists are, but there's just a lot more tourists in the yeah. way of the photograph. Or you just go when they are not there. You yeah. Know? And, and it's, it's not that hard. It, it, it's not because the tourists are having breakfast. They're all at the buffet till 10 o'clock. So you, you, if you're up... Before that, you'll get the streets to yourself and, and hopefully be able to capture something that uh, that no one else can. Um, Absolutely. So I want to ask you, uh, your, your background as a comedian, uh, I'm obsessed by comedians. I listen to so many comedy podcasts, <laughs> but it's not the ones where they say, you know, why the chicken cross the road. It's the ones where it's uh, the comedians get on and they talk about the craft uh-huh. and they talk about the work involved in honing their bits and getting mm. those to a point that they're happy and then they get rid of it and they'll start a new 30 minute set yeah. so um when you were working as so d- did you study improv and then did you do stand-up after that 
I, I kind of did a, a lot of things all at once. I, I did some improv. I did some stand up. I did uh, I did a stage show. My stage name was the, um, I can't believe I'm, I'm going to release this into the world. But my stage name was the rubber chicken guy. And uh-huh. I did uh, a 60 minute and a 90 minute stage show, usually wow. for family audiences, corporate audiences, festivals, that kind of thing. And so it was there was and it was satirical. I did magic. I did juggling. I did improv. I did audience participation. I did, frankly, I did whatever it took to bring an experience of laughter to my audiences. And uh, but you're absolutely right about I mean, you've never met such a serious group of people yeah. in all your life. I mean, comedians for all the laughter, they t- take their craft uh, much more seriously than most photographers yes. that I've met. They they sit down and they pick apart why did people respond? Why did they not respond? What's my timing? Um, they will record their sets. They'll actually record them and sit down and listen and they will track their laughs per minute and they will figure out how can I tighten this and make the best possible experience. They don't hang on to a joke just because they really like it. Uh, if it doesn't make people laugh if it's not part of the experience if it doesn't make things better they will they will cut it out and so that i think taught me to edit ruthlessly it taught me to pay attention to the experience and taught me to ask why why do people respond to certain devices in a photograph and and why do they not yeah, so it's interesting because you, you, you hear about the like the, the, the comedians talk about getting that tight five set. So they'll, they'll, that, that's what the beginner needs to aim to towards, which is like mm-hmm. uh, a new photographer getting that first five images in their folio that start to uh, reflect them. It's something that's unique. And, and uh, the comedians also talk about like when they first started, they sounded like this comedian or that comedian because that's who their influences were. And then they would often uh, choose uh, topics that everyone else was talking about. And then they talk about the success came when they started telling jokes about stuff that was personal and meaningful to them. And I see that in photography as well. The minute you start photographing the things that you love that are meaningful to you, then suddenly your work takes on uh, a whole different look. So uh, with, with, with the comedy, so um, I love the fact that they, they work and work and work and work a bit. So with the photography, how is that similar? How do you work a shot? And what did you learn from uh, the photography training, the, well, the I, comedian training, to, to, to apply that to your photography? Yeah, like I said, I mean, they're very actually they're very similar in the sense that you learn in comedy a lot of even though you're working on most often you're working on a script that you're refining and editing. There is a lot of improvisations. And I think there's a lot of improvisation in photography Mm. as well. I think the lessons that I learned that were most important, uh, you're absolutely right. When when you start out, you're kind of caught doing a lot. You're trying a lot of different comedians on for size. And it it is when you uh, very intentionally say, I am not going to, if there's another, even if I really if I wrote a great piece about uh, dentists, I, I just I probably wouldn't do it because it just wouldn't it would always be compared to what Bill Cosby did with right. dentists. And and there's a million photographers who are doing things that are so unique to them that in order to be really good, you just kind of have to go, you know what, that's too much like his. I'm going to pursue my own thing. And they're they're very they're relentless about that. The very best ones are so relentless about being 
uh, knowing what their character is, knowing what kind of things they say and how they would say it and staying so true to that because they know that the minute they step out of it, uh, they will dilute the character that they play. They'll dilute their, their audience will be like, I don't even know how to take this. It's not, you know, it's not Jim Gaffigan. It's not Brian Regan or, you know, any of these other guys. It's so I guess the lesson that I learned is to be very intentional. And I think you see that is especially I hope in my teaching this this idea of being very intentional, paying attention to your why or to your vision and sticking to that. And there's yeah, there, there's you could go to Venice. There's a million things you could photograph. But at a certain point, you have to make choices and you say, no, the f- work I am doing is about this. Comedians do uh, comedy about certain things. A lot of photographers haven't figured that out yet. They don't know what they're making photographs about. They know they're making photographs of all kinds of things, yeah. but what are they making photographs about? And when you can dial that in, when you know that what the thing that you want to make photographs about is, your work changes. It changes in terms of the choices you make technically. It changes in terms of how many photographs you put out into the world and what you've done with them in post-processing. Everything changes. And that's when people begin to, they're on Instagram. They're like, I knew it was yours the second I saw it, even before I saw your name, because there's a fingerprint on it the way that there was with Henri Cartier-Bresson or Steve McCurry or, you know, you pick anyone in any genre, the, the really notable photographers are doing one very narrow thing and not doing a whole bunch of other things. I love that. The other thing that surprised me at first when I started listening to these comedians talk about their work was the fact that they go out, many of them, five, six uh, times, ten times a week and they, they practice their work in front of smaller crowds for nothing, which is yeah. like... A photographer shooting folio and the great ones the great photographers shoot folio regularly they don't just um you know and i'm talking about commercial and portrait photographers now they're not just um shooting for the money which is uh what i did for a long time and it's not until like some um 20 years in that i decided to start oh, i might just pick up a camera just because now and see what happens and that's when my work really started to take on its own style it just took me 20 years to work that out so mm-hmm. uh, how important is shooting folio to you i mean it obviously it is because you're off doing it like many many times so um, a lot of these trips are they assignments or are they uh folio trips uh- Almost nothing I do is assignment based anymore. I still do the odd thing, but mostly uh, I worked very hard. <laughs> I kind of I like to do things uh, backwards and counterintuitively, Gina. So when everyone else was working really, really hard to get clients, I was working hard to not have clients. Right. Um, and, and by that, I mean working really hard to be in a position where I was my only client. And so I look at my all my work as assignment work. I don't it's of course, it's play. I love it, but it is work. Yeah. And I go to shoot. But I am the client. I'm the one that creates the brief. I'm the one that has to figure out, OK, now we've shot it. What the hell are we going to do with these photographs? How are we going to sell it? How are we going to make money? But I am the client. And so when I look at, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, the importance of personal work and my perspective, it's a little idealistic, but uh, what the hell, I'll throw it out there. If, if it's not personal, you shouldn't be doing it. If, if it doesn't mean something to you on some level, 
why are you wasting your time on it? Because you're not going to bring your A game. You are not going to bring everything that you've got internally to this. You're not going to, um, you know, really uh, struggle with this to make it the best possible work you can because that's ah, just client work. It, it can be client work and deeply personal at the same time. And that's that comes down to your choice of clients and, um, you know, what you choose to spend your days photographing and how you choose to make your money. But even if you're doing that, I don't think we can bring our A game to our clients unless we are also always honing our craft and growing in our craft. And client work is not always the best place to be taking those creative risks. You know, you, you need to, I think you need to push the limits a little bit, but the place to take those wild sky blue creative risks where you're just like, I wonder what would happen if I did this. That's where your portfolio work, your personal work, whatever you want to call it, that's where that needs to occur. Or we stagnate. We just get to a point where suddenly that creative groove we were in has become this rut that we're just spinning our wheels in. So I think it's really pers uh, important. I think, you know, we've got one crack at this life and Again, once you're past the survival line and you're actually paying your bills, the the sooner you can be shooting the stuff that just makes your heart beat faster and gets you excited. Even in terms of a genre, you know, people say, well, I, sh I just I got into wedding photography just to pay bills. And now that's all I'm shooting. And how do I get out of it? Um, and it's not just wedding, any genre. If you, you should not get really good at something you don't like doing. You know, pursue the stuff you love. And if you you're good at it and if you've got a business model that works and those are some big ifs, then you will be able to do the thing that you love for your clients and bring that enthusiasm, bring that skill and on the side, take some bigger risks so that next year you can bring all of those elevated skills, that new perspective on your craft back to your clients. Fantastic. Um, it it's an interesting time. We've got all this information that's out there. I kind of think there's like too much information. And as a, a new photographer coming out, you don't know what you don't know. So you're seeing that there's, uh, you know, some huge uh, social media accounts that are that are pushing out photos. And I, I kind of look at it as like there's there's two kinds of photography. There's there's the fast food McDonald's style of photography, uh, which is technically fantastic and uh, everything looks great. It's very, very popular. It just doesn't have much depth. And then there's mm. the other side where there is that the, the, the fine art where the, the people are taking the time to think about the photos that they're taking and putting out in the world. But as a new photographer, everything just looks new and shiny. So what would you be, your advice be to someone coming up to how do they find that inspiration? How do they know um, who to follow and, and how to develop their style? I, I think we need to consume a lot at the beginning. I think we need to try on every hat that comes by. We need to try macro and portraiture and, you know, unless you don't want to do macro and portraiture and then don't do it. But all of that shiny stuff, I need, I think we need to try it when we first start. I yeah. had that advantage when I was, when I was younger, I tried everything I possibly could. I, I, cut my teeth technically by doing all kinds of stuff and trying all kinds of different gear. I mean, I think the gear is a lot of fun. It's not yeah. going to make your photographs or, or you as a photographer necessarily any better, but it will help you hone your craft. It'll give you a wider gamut of technical knowledge. So for as long as you need to, I think dive in, play with it, do, do what you can. Just, I think the important thing is to remember that the gear isn't 
it, the gear itself is not going to uh, make your photographs any better. It's not the magic button that we all need to, you know, if your pictures are bad, you know, Robert Kappa said, if your pictures aren't close enough, you're not, if your pictures aren't good enough, you're not close enough. He didn't say if your pictures aren't good enough, go buy a better Leica. Um, you know, it, there, there are very real things that we can do to grow in our craft. And I think as you grow, you need to tighten the funnel up. You need to be choosier about the stuff that you look at. You need to start making choices. And this is the one thing I see with, uh, I'm not going to say amateurs because I think we can all be amateurs for our entire lives because we do it for love. But the, the beginners, uh, very often the one thing they're not doing is making choices because they're scared to, um, to go down this one road to, you know, to get on the bus. There's this wonderful article written called the Helsinki bus station theory and the, the encouragement, I, I forgive me, I can't remember the author, but you could actually find it very quickly by Googling it. The, the author says, look, when you, when you get on that bus, stay on the bus for a while. Don't just jump off. Every time you see a new thing, there's a new gimmick. Oh, suddenly it's HDR. Suddenly it's black and white. Suddenly it's this, suddenly it's that. Stay on these buses for a while, ride it out, learn the lessons because the the ones that are going to do i mean there are photographers who've made a very good living and made incredibly good art by just doing black and white portraits if you gave them a brand new camera and you know asked them how they felt about hdr or about panoramas or they'd be they'd just look at you like they were lost that's not what they do they've made choices the thing i do is black and white portraits and anything that doesn't relate to it i probably don't don't worry myself with it. So at a certain point, uh, I, I think that we need to start making choices and it really intentional. And those choices would be, for example, who you listen to. You know, everyone's listening to everyone on the Internet. If you want to kill your joy, ask the Internet what they think about your photography, because half of them will tell you that they love it. Half of them will will tell you that they hate it. The other half, uh, my math has always been dodgy, <laughs> will, will be completely apathetic and not respond to you. Yeah. Well, who's right? It doesn't matter. Ask people that actually that who create work that you love and create it in a way that you respect and ask for their opinion so that you get more than oh, I really like it. Well, that's not helpful. Yeah. You know, making choices, even cho- choosing just pick some gear and get really good at it after you've played with it. Find the one that you really like. One of the reasons we we lose mastery of our tools is because we change those tools so quickly. You know, it's SLRs for a while, then it's mirrorless, and then it's, you know, this, and then it's back to film. And and nobody ever gets to the point where the camera just feels like an extension of their hand. Yes. And they, they don't have to think about what they're doing with the buttons. They're thinking about composition and moment and storytelling. They're thinking about the stuff that actually makes compelling photographs. And the way the camera becomes an extension of your hand is by doing the work and and doing it repetitively. So on that, um, I've heard you talk about uh, perfectionism and um, starting ugly and how important it is to suck at first at something Mm -hmm. before you get good at it. And there is a real reluctance to do that because suddenly, and I see it and, you know, I've experienced it myself. There's this uh, paralysis that happens when you take a shot and you're like, all right, I'm going to release it in the world. No, what's everyone going to think of me? It's not ready yet. So I'm Mm. not going to share it. What are your thoughts on that? 
Oh, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I, th- I think we all take ourselves far too seriously. And as a result of that, we stop being willing to risk. We stop being willing to play. Um, I do these workshops and it's happened uh, not infrequently that I, you know, come around a corner. I'm in Venice. I see one of my students and I say, hey, you know, let me see what you're shooting. And of course, the, the terror in their eyes is is <laughs> hard to hard to hide because they think what I'm looking for is oh, what masterpieces she created this morning when what I the only thing I'm looking for is have you been taking risks if you've said you know what I'm just having a terrible morning I I just I haven't shot anything good and I look and you've made like five exposures I, I'm sorry you got to put your camera to your face and go out and make a hundred more not pray and spray not mindless button pushing but you've got to risk and play and not take it all so seriously just see what happens when you do this or when you do that you know shoot a hundred pictures of the same scene but different moments from different angles and risk knowing that you know great painters always made a million sketches of things there is far more in their sketchbooks than ever appeared on gallery walls. No one's going to see that. We're not going to be judged by it, but you will not get to the good stuff unless you just risk. And the idea that it has to be perfect keeps us, you know, or that other people will judge it as imperfect, keeps us from risking and playing. And it is the risk that will get us to the point where we get something that we just like, you bite off a little too much more than you can chew. And and you're like, I never in a million years did I think I would get this shot, but then I tried this and it just happened to work out. You know, we're so reluctant to say that it was a lucky shot. Every shot we make is lucky. We are so lucky to have these tools in our hand. They're the best tools that photographers have ever had. We're lucky to be where we are. We're lucky that the light did what it did and that, you know, everything fell into place. There's nothing wrong with saying this is the luckiest shot ever. Thank God my craft was up to the task because I've practiced, because I've, you know, learned my craft. Thank God it was up to the task of getting the photograph. But that moment, of course, it was lucky. We just happened to be there and taking the risks. And that's what it takes to make compelling photographs. If you don't make photographs until you think you have nothing to lose, until you think you're guaranteed you're going to get this, you're going to nail it, it's probably not that exciting of a photograph. It's probably not going to make you that happy and go, oh, my God, I can't look at that. I can't believe I got that. That's for me is where the excitement lives, is where the photograph has life in it, has spark. And that usually comes from risk, not from just mailing it in and doing the same thing we've done for 30 years. Yeah, I agree 100 percent. Just just uh, on uh, developing your style, David. So when you're out shooting, so let's say you're out somewhere for the day, what does that look like? So um are you getting up early? Are you heading out? Are you sitting for a moment in the space? Run me oh, through it, a shoot. It, it, you know what? It's it's all of that. It's so everything's different. So if I'm walking, I mean, I'm immediately thinking about walking up and down the banks of the Ganges River when I was last in Varanasi. Mm. And I generally didn't go into the rest of the city because I knew that what I wanted was life along the Ganges. I knew there were a million things in this big, incredible city that I could occupy my time with, that I could probably, there's probably millions, every day, millions of photographs that I was not getting. And I'm totally okay with that. What I'm not okay with is uh, just sort of going and wandering aimlessly and hoping that something comes. I'm intentional. I know that I'm photographing 
about life along the Ganges River. So I need to put myself there. I need to put myself there when the light is is uh, the kind of light that interests me, when the weather is the kind of weather that interests me. I like moody, rainy, foggy, anything yeah. that's other than just bright, shiny, uh, sunny and shiny. But there are times when all I do is walk and I just I'm making quick little shots here and there. And there's little opportunities that uh, just kind of pop up. And I think, wow, that was lucky. And then there are other times where I find something and I think I've got a great backdrop here. This is a beautiful stage and there's no characters on it, but I'm going to sit and I'm going to wait. I'm going to see what the light does and I'm going to watch the world go by and I will sit for 30 minutes or an hour. Sometimes I'll take out my little notebook and I'll actually describe the scene. I think if you're sitting there writing and you're writing about what the scene looks like, you start seeing the place in new ways, things you wouldn't have on first glance. Um, some people do that by sketching. You know, if you're sitting there actually sketching with a pen and paper, you will see things that you won't if you're just kind of frantically looking through your 200 millimeter lens. God, I hope I find something to photograph. <laughs> so um, I will do whatever it takes. And then there are times I will just sit with, you know, I'll go to my favorite chai cellar or if I'm in Venice, I'll go to a wine bar. But often I'll be sitting outside with that glass of wine and I will see something go by and I'll be like, there's my photograph. That's that's the shot that I'm looking for right now. And I'll get up and I'll go and I'll make my photograph and I'll come back and hopefully my wine is still there. But if not, you, you order another one. It's it's being willing just to be immersed and observant and watching. And I've never been too comfortable with sort of a uh, formula. There's not a this is how I do it and I do this for four hours. I just kind of go and wander and look and be part of things until I get this kind of feeling like, okay, it's time to, it's really time to work. Like you got to sit here for an hour and you got to work this scene because there's something in it. You know, I just look, kind of listen to my gut and, uh, you know, it's in terms of personal style, that's, I'm there first for the experience. I want to wonder at things. I want to truly perceive them. And I don't care if at this point in my career, I come back from a trip and I don't have 3 million great photographs. In fact, I go knowing I'm not going to, so the pressure's off. I just think, you know what, if I could come back from this with 12 images I really like, then by the end of the year, I might like eight of them still. And at the end of my career, there might be two that stand out. That's a pretty good, that's pretty good um, odds. You know, if Ansel Adams said a good year is 12 images, I'd be happy with about the same. You know, the world is I don't kid myself, Gina. The world is not waiting for me to come back and unleash a torrent of masterpieces on Instagram. It, you go away for that long. They're like, I'm sorry, David, who? You know, it, the photographs, I, I, there are very few of us are actually going to leave our legacy with photographs. So I want my legacy to be just a life that's lived with wonder. And, you know, I just want to when I'm there, I want to be truly there and usually that means having the camera in my hand, but not always. And that happens to have translated into coming back most often with photographs that I happen to like. So it's that practice of uh, mindfulness and just switching off all the other distractions and just really being in the moment and really seeing what's out there. But then to work the shot, are you... Are you reviewing the images that night and then thinking, I nearly got it, it's not quite right, I need to go back and try again? How does that look? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, there is a point in, I think you, I can be uh, moderately creative for about six hours a day. So I will photograph generally for three hours in the morning, three hours in the evening, and I will usually in the middle of the day, I'll let 
I'll go and have a nap or I'll go yeah. and have a, a beer or whatever or lunch. Or I will download my photographs and I'm quite uh, consistent in looking at my images every day because I generally, I don't work in single images. I like to work in bodies of work that are made up of single images, but I want to be looking at this stuff and going, okay, uh, I, right now I'm working on a black and white series in India about this one thing. Am I filling the holes I'd like to fill? Am I missing opportunities? I look through the stuff and I go, oh, that's really interesting. I didn't expect that. Is that the shot or is that just a sketch? Do I need to go back tomorrow and see if I can get all of that? But wait for that one more thing. Wait for the light to change or wait for the moment to be stronger. Um, and and I often will take those images that are my, my selects and I'll put them on my iPhone and I'll carry them around. And if I'm sitting having chai and I'm bored and I just need to kind of get out of the chaos for a bit, I will look at those selects from the day before and just kind of think about them and think, okay, where is this all going? What, what did this one body of work that I'm creating now or these images that are fitting into a larger body of work, where is that going? And am I, again, am I missing something? Where my, And it's amazing how often I'll be sitting there and I'll get this idea like, oh, you know what you haven't done? You haven't gone to this area and photographed this or why haven't you done? All your images are so static. Why are you shooting at one two fiftieth instead of at one thirtieth of a second? Where are your motion shots? Where's the stuff that's got soul and movement? And, you know, like very often I'll just, I'll be sitting there and I'll just go, ah, you know, I can't, I've been doing this 30 years and I'm still forgetting to try this or try that. And what risks am I not taking? So that's where it's really helpful to me. And it's also helpful technically. If you get back from a day shooting and you realize, God, my sensor's messy, now's the time to clean it. Mm. You know, it's not the time to stick your head in the sand and just hope the dust goes away or to get home and think, oh God, now I've got to clean off all these dust spots. Just clean it up. Or if you notice your lens isn't working, you know, I had a, a lens fail on me in this last trip. I think I just bumped it around too much and it got all kind of, kind of um, wobbly in parts. And, and I didn't notice it because I was not, I was on safari and I was just, you know, I was not paying attention. It was sort of my, my B camera was the one I was sort of doing pickup shots with. And, but it wasn't until I got home that I realized, oh, you know what, if I'd known this lens wasn't performing, I wouldn't have used them for any of them because there were a few shots in there that would have been really wonderful photographs, but they're just not sharp. I mean, I don't mean it in a pixel peeper sensor sensor that were they were just not sharp yeah. you know the lens was not if something was out of calibration like i i think just you know like wobbly in, in yeah. the camera and so you need to be mindful you know it all comes back to this idea of mindfulness you just need to pay attention look at your gear make sure it's working and then once it's working you know stop thinking about it let it get out of the way but photographers, you know, our job is to be perceptive. And I don't think you can do that in this mad rush from, you know, Piazza San Marco to the Rialto Bridge and, and hoping that you're going to find something in that 12 hours that you're in Venice for before you run off to Florence, before you run off to Rome and then get on a plane to you, you just can't, you know, you, you cannot. No one can be perceptive in that time. It just doesn't work. You, you can be perceptive enough not to trip over your own shoes most of the time. That's about all I can accomplish. Making photographs is a whole other ballgame. And I need to be there. I need to put in the time and figure out what this place is to me. And, you know, it's to, to do it in a rush, I think, is uh, I, I don't want to live my life in a rush, you know. So just coming back to the, the work. Uh, so you're out there. You've taken the shots. When you're reviewing the images, what is it about 
an image that you've taken that will stop you in your tracks. It'll make you um, just say, oh my God, this is the one. I got it here for these reasons. What what are you looking for in that image? What are you critical of? And uh, what, are you, what are you loving yourself sick about? Which is one of my favorite phrases. <laughs> it's a very Aussie <laughs> phrase. I love it. Um, <laughs> I, I'm looking for life. I, I want my photographs to have something of life and and wonder in them uh story you know i often i will look at my images first in a fairly small thumbnail because i find that very helpful in evaluating my compositions and in terms of balance and tension and white space and you know if i'm looking at them in thumbnail it's very frequent and i'm not looking for i a lot of people i think they go through their their days photographs and they're looking for this is the category the ones that don't suck Right. And they're just like, I got to find as many of these that don't suck as possible. And I'm looking for the opposite. I'm looking just for that. If I got three or four that I just loved. So I'm just looking for those and I'm going through and I'm not going, well, will that one do? Is that one good enough for Instagram? I'm scrolling through and I'm like, no, my default is no, 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 no. Oh my God, look at that. That's cool. Something in it, whether it's the color depth or the the graphic qualities of it, the, the something about the gesture of it. Uh, it can be a lot of different things, but something that makes me go, yes, not, well, I guess that'll do. You know, and so I just, it's my editing's actually very quick. I just flip through them. And if nothing grabs me, yes, later when I get home, I'm still going to do another edit. In fact, I usually edit my work three or four times just to make sure over time I haven't missed things that I might have because, you know, when you're there at the time, you're too close to the event, you're expecting certain things and maybe you're working on a body of work that's black and white and you've actually made a couple that really work well in color. But on your first edit, that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for those images that work really well as part of that body of work in black and white. And a year later, you come across this one image and you're like, how did I miss that? Well, I, I missed it because I wasn't looking for color. I wasn't looking for verticals. I was looking for horizontals and I wasn't looking for, I mean, there can be a long list of things you're not looking for. So I'm just looking for things that are alive. And sometimes that's purely about color. Most of the time it's not. Most of the time it's also gesture and tension. I just want, I personally want to look at it and go, yes. And it's for me, it's either a five star or it's nothing. And that's not. Well, how? It's not that the five stars are so great. It's just it's a pick or it's not. It's it's my choice for this image or or it's not at all. I, I don't I don't want to ever put work out into the world that I'm like, eh, it's almost there. It's it's kind of, you know, it's a four. It's a three. Why? I mean, I know people use those stars for their own particular reasons. But for me, I, I just it's either a yes or a no. It's very binary. And maybe that's my personality. I tend to be kind of a yes or a no kind of guy. I like to be a both and kind of guy as well. But when it's my images, it either works for me or it doesn't. And I'm not thinking, well, what does someone else think about this? I'm thinking, did I go, oh my God, yes. You know, am I loving, I love that expression. Am I loving myself sick about this? You know, <laughs> that's fantastic. Because if you're not, it's just a sketch. It's fine. Let it go. Maybe later it will sing to you in a way that it doesn't now. But I'm looking for because if I if I'm gone for, say, a week or two, I'm looking for 12. If I'm really lucky, maybe 24 images that I can put into a body of work. That's, you know, one or two images a day. 
There's no pressure on me when I'm editing to make it to cram a square peg into a round hole. It's the only pressure is just to be attentive, to look at them and go, is it does it make me go, oh, my God, yes. Or I missed it. But if it do miss it, I sit and I look at it and I spend time with it. Okay, why isn't it working? And sometimes it's just that, okay, maybe I do just need to crop it. Maybe I need to go back and reshoot it in different light. You know, what are the possibilities that this sketch might be nudging me towards? And then there's, you know, then there's the rest of them, which are just pure kind of the, the I hesitate to call them garbage because they're necessary for the process. You need them to get the dust off and to get the grease kind of going and get, you know, get everything well lubricated and to the point where you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm really ready to go now. It took me 50 images for the first 30 minutes of the day, but now I've now I'm seeing things the way I need to. So in that sense, I honor those 50 images. I rarely delete them because there have been times when. A year or two later, I go back, I'm looking for a cover of something that's vertical instead of horizontal. And I like verticals, or sorry, I like horizontal most of the time. So if I'm looking, it doesn't work as a vertical image, I'm, I will often dismiss it because I wasn't looking for that. But a year later, I come back, I'm looking for a color vertical and I go, oh my God, that's fantastic. I love it. So I keep my images. I don't delete anything unless it's a pure black frame or, you know, a pure white frame. The rest is just, you know, they remind me, they keep me humble. I love that you say that that first 50 images takes the dust off. Uh, I totally agree because I, I, I have the same problems when I'm off shooting somewhere new. It's like, and I'm so frustrated by that first two days that it's like, I haven't got anything. I can't see. That's it. I suck. I'm yeah, not going to yeah, shoot right? ever again. And I go through it after 30 years. I'm still going through it. Nah, that's it. It's gone. Mm. I can't see anymore. I'm not going to take any more photos. And then... And then you chip away and you chip away and it's like, that's rubbish, that's rubbish, that's rubbish. But those, it's often that that rubbish shot that you go, hang on a minute, have a look at that background, the way that that goes, there's something here. And then you go, if I just turn a little bit and try this, and then you get the shot. So it's so important to do that. And I think that can apply to, to everyday photography as well. It's just getting out there and doing the work, getting the dust off that leads to the good stuff. Absolutely. I think photographers talk too little about the creative process. I think, you know, that we talk a lot about how we use our cameras and which lenses we use. And, you know, when I'm when I'm doing if I'm doing a talk or something, the most common question still is what lens did you use or what was your setting? Uh, that is so much less helpful than tell me about your creative process. What decisions did you make to get to this particular image? Because so often it's the credit goes to those initial 50 images to just working out the kinks, figuring out, no, it's not this. No, it's not this. And getting to the heart of that, ultimately that photograph that does work. And we need to not put so much pressure. I don't, my job when I'm making those 50 images is they're not mistakes because I'm not trying to make a masterpiece. I'm trying to get the juice is flowing and I'm trying to get through the process. My job is in a very real sense is to make images that suck. You know, when we, when I did comedy, there's, there was this saying, you got to have a place where it's safe to suck, where yes. you would go to open mic night, n- open mic night, and you would just be really, really bad. It's not that you, you don't look at the guy and go, oh, he's a terrible comic. No, he could be a very, very good guy. He could be the best comic in the world. But it's new material and he's working it out and you need 
the process. You know, there's a great uh, documentary about Jerry Seinfeld when he left Friends and went back to stand up. And he started, I think it's just called Comedian. Yeah. And he started right from square one. He ditched all his old material and he rewrote it and went back to the clubs and he figured out what worked and what didn't all over again. You wouldn't look at him on those first nights and go, wow, this guy's terrible. His material is immature, you know, I mean, in the sense that it hasn't been tried, it hasn't been edited and tested. It's not the material that it is going to be 500 nights from now. But if he doesn't do that material, if he doesn't do those those nights that he does suck, you know, he's not going to get to that polished final show on Broadway. And we are the same way. We need to we need to honor the sketch images. We need to learn from them. Not just take them and discard them, but learn from them. What could I have done to make this better, if anything? Can I rescue this uh, situation and go tomorrow and try it again? That's why you need the time. That's why you need a week and not 12 hours. Because 12 hours gives you one shot at it in one set of lighting conditions with one set of moments, and then it's done. Whereas five days, six days, seven days, whatever, gives you as many of those opportunities as you need to figure out how to make it work, to change your angle, to change your light, you know, to, to make 20, 50, 100 sketch images before suddenly everything comes to, together and you're like, ah, oh, that's what I was looking for. You know, it's it, painters don't just go to the studio and six hours later they come up with a masterpiece i mean some some do some songwriters writers or novelists sit down and they they nail it on the first try but most of most of the creative people in this world they take it's a process of getting through it and not beating themselves up over it just going no my job right now on the first one as a writer is a really bad first draft <laughs> it's just to get it done yeah and and it will be really I don't know anyone who can't make a really bad first draft on their first try. Right. <laughs> and now you go and you rewrite and you re and you edit and you shift things a little. And on the third or fourth rewrite, and they, they say, you know, the, the hardest part of writing the real work is the rewriting. Why would it not be any uh, why would it not be the same for photographers? You know, we're working with a whole set of decisions. We're working with a lot of unpredictable things and our, our own inner life included. It makes sense that it would take time to get these images. Yes, once in a while you get that one that just sheer dumb luck. It works. And thank God you were ready for it. But most of the time, these things take time. Yeah, the photo gods, I, I believe, gift you about, in your lifetime, three of those shots where you just happen to be in the right place at the right time. You get gifted this amazing shot, but you can't have a consistent body of work without doing that work. And I love the idea of open mic nights for photographers where you just go out and today I'm just going to play, I'm going to photograph, it doesn't matter what the end result is, I'm just going to put out, I'm going to test out this new style or this new lens or this uh, focal length or this style of shooting and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because if you can, if you can do that in a, in a context where you have the freedom to risk and you don't take yourself so seriously, mm -hmm. I think it is those risks where you end up finding something surprising about, you know, oh, I didn't know that I didn't know that I knew how to do that. Right. Because you're combining things and you're not like you're not so focused on the perfect. And sometimes when you're not so perfect, on, uh, you're not so 
focused on the perfect, that's when the poetic creeps through and you're like, oh, look at that. I didn't even know I knew how to do that. But so many times the best images I come come home with are ones that are kind of like, I, I remember being there and I remember making that photograph. But I also kind of, I, I wasn't so, um, so focused on it. There's like, oh, this has got to work or it's, you know, it was more like, let's just see what happens. And you look at it and go, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Like, And that's how your craft grows is you you then look at it and go, that does work. I love that. Or, you know, to your point about, you know, personal style or whatever, some of us, we will always work with uh, a fairly small group of techniques because that's the stuff that excites us. My work increasingly as I travel is going in one of two directions. Uh, the, the one direction is bright full like fuji chrome uh focused on color and moment and the other is like black and white and 30th of a second exposures with lots of intentional movement not intentional camera movement but movement of the subject and that feeling that you get when you're right in a moment and things are a little bit kind of fuzzy around the edges that I discovered just through playing and realizing not just that it works, but that I love that. I discovered something about myself. And now that work, I think, is get it's stronger than it's ever been. And it was just from taking risks. I never set out to, oh, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to really try to slow my shutter down. I mean, <laughs> I knew how to do that. Yeah. It took the risk and experimentation and the combination of a bunch of things where I finally went, I love that so much that I'm willing. I'm, I didn't seek a style. I discovered it and went, that's what I love. That's my voice. And we'll see how long it lasts. I, I don't think any person's style or voice lasts forever. People, you know, guys like Picasso changed his with some frequency. Mm. But uh, but it was for him, too. It was always about risk and trying that next thing that kind of grabbed his curiosity and went, I wonder what happens when I do this. Fantastic. And just to finish up on, uh, have you got, uh, you've got a hundred, but have you got one tip that you can give to uh, the listeners today that one thing that they can go away today and try that will improve their photography? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, this is, this is a little bit more cerebral, but I would say st study the masters, find the Find the people that make photographs that grab you. None of us have time for the stuff that's just okay or, you know, oh, that's really sharp or who cares, right? Find the stuff that grabs you by your deepest parts and won't let go and then figure out what it is about that that you love. Is it the color? Is it the motion? Is it the, the use of balance or tension or, or negative space? What is it? And then intentionally start to play with that, go out and risk, try to recreate this stuff, figure out the craft behind it, the composition. But I, it's all in it's in all of this. The best photography stuff is in the intangibles. It is not. I promise you, I swear to God, people, it is not your camera. Your lens is fine. It's not that you need more strobes. Right. Unless you're Joe McNally, two or three strobes is probably enough stop with the gear and figure out the visual language, figure out the stuff that lights you on fire. You will bring more to your photography with that passion and that curiosity and focusing on the intangibles on composition, on um, uh, just on pursue storytelling. God, learn to tell a story. I mean, that kind of stuff is what grabs people. 
And so figure that out. Find the people that you love and look at. Don't just flip through. I don't mean go to their Instagram feed. I mean, buy one of their books, the actual photography books, and spend a month looking at that work. Get Sebastio Salgado or, you know, whoever it is. Get that book and study it and figure out what is it? What is at the heart of each of these photographs? And start applying that. Start, you know, don't worry about the gear stuff. You, If you know how to focus and expose, you're on your way. Start focusing on the intangible stuff, the, the visual language stuff. That is the, that's the stuff that will make your images do what those other images are doing for you. Grab people. The, that's what gives them their life and their spark. Brilliant. Thank you so much, David. That's uh, been amazing. Welcome. So much, like I could go on for another four hours, but that's uh, that's me. I'll have to have you back on at another, well, abs- absolutely, another time because yeah. I could yeah, talk about this forever. Uh, where can people find you, uh, David? You've got a lot of... Uh, stuff out there a lot of amazing stuff so yeah i would i I would uh encourage people to go to three places if you want to see more of my work uh and my blog you can find me at daviddusheman.com uh most of my educational resources i.e ebooks and that kind of thing are available at craftandvision.com and i have a new podcast out that focuses on everyday creativity and uh, a lot of the stuff i learn as a photographer though apply in a broader context to life and you know other artistic pursuits and that's called a beautiful anarchy and uh you can get that at a beautiful anarchy.com i kind of created that as a podcast for people who don't listen to podcasts it's 15 minutes once a week it's kind of your your weekly sermon on the creative life and everything i talk about in that has some bearing um on photography you know photography for me is just mostly a metaphor for a life well lived Fantastic. And I'll put all those links uh, in the show notes for you, David. Thanks so much for your time today. It's been amazing chatting to you. I wish you continued success and look forward to the opportunity to chat with you again soon. Yeah, let's do a part two soon. (laughs) Thanks. I'd like that. There you go. Great chat with David. And of course, you can have a look at the show notes uh, for some of his incredible images Mm. from all over the world. He's just so talented. Or you can just check out his website, David, and you spell his last name, D-U-C-H-E-M-I-N.com. And he's got a podcast called A Beautiful Anarchy, which you can find at A Beautiful Anarchy. Com. All right, so we're at the end of this week's episode. What are you doing in the coming week, Gina? Uh, editing the next couple yes. of days, Val. Yes, lots of editing. So that's that. you know what that means? <laughs> You're going to watch like that's Netflix the voice? Or, well, yeah. no, no. What are you going to watch, watch on Netflix? No, actually not Netflix. I've got to finish no. um, okay. Morning Wars because I've got three episodes oh. to go. Yeah, how you still haven't I? finished. I know, you? I know, but there's just, you know, just distractions, Val. So I'll try okay. and get that finished. What about you? I was watching The Outsider because I am in love with Jason Bateman oh, and have duh. have been in love with Jason Bateman since I was 16 years old. Mm. Um, he doesn't know that, but, you know. Uh, uh, and um, But I'm up to episode four and I've decided to give up because it's too scary for me. So oh. I'm not going to continue with um, The Outsider. Right. I will have to try something else. Unclear yet. 
as to what to try. Yes. I heard good things about The Stranger. I did watch Watchmen the whole first season and did not understand anything that went on (laughs) at all. Not one thing. I kept thinking, I'll get it eventually, I'll get it eventually, but I never got it. Oh, I've just remembered what I'm re-watching, Val. What? Mad Men. Oh, so yeah. good. Oh, my God. Yeah, the, it's it, because it's just the the styling on that show is amazing. so good. And you just mm-hmm. want to live in the 1950s and 60s again. Again, mm. I didn't live in the 50s, barely in the <laughs> 60s. But you, it's such a cool era. It really yes. is. I loved yes, it. I love that show. So I'm doing show. that and then I think I'll do the Sopranos after that. Have you done that before? Mm-hmm. Oh, Not, you've watched The Sopranos? Well, I don't think I finished it, so I've got to go back, start again, because I keep uh, – it's on always on a, a – a, you know you'll get an episode of The Sopranos on a, a long-haul flight, so I'll dip right. in and I'll watch three or four episodes, but I'm all over the place. So right. I want to start from the start and go through and watch it properly because that is insp- – I love those. Um, well, and you know your daughter, is, your daughter is on The Sopranos. <laughs> She's not, but you've got this thing about her, like she looks like Meadow. Yeah, she looks like Meadow, totally. Oh, my God. She's like, your daughter is on The Sopranos. That's right, yes. Well, Meadow grown up. Because they'd all be on um, some – how many seasons did that go for? Oh, long time. So after you get to seven or eight seasons of a show, uh, Mm. it's write your own check, basically. They're all on (laughs) – they're squillions. They're squillionaires after you do that. So that's the aim for anyone who's um, thinking getting Mm -hmm. into acting, get find a show (laughs) that will go past seven seasons, I think. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, that sounds like fun. So you'll be doing editing and watching shows. Binge watch, yes. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> All right, fantastic. All right, so uh, where do we find you online, Gina? You find me at ginamilitia.com. That's G-I-N-A-M-I-L-I-C-I-A. I'm, at, I'm on all social media at Gina Militia. And if you want to take your photography to the next level, then you can find me in the Goal community where I mentor photographers from all over the world. If you're struggling with flash, Uh, If you're struggling with getting off auto or working in Lightroom, Photoshop, uh, starting a business, we cover all that stuff. I will hold your hand through all those processes and you can find that, find the goal community at ginamilitia.com and click on join the community. What about you, Val? You can find me at uh, Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And, of course, I hang out in the goal community as well because it's a bunch of really awesome people and I love to see all of their photography and how much that they have developed and learnt. It's absolutely fantastic and inspiring. So thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer. For more information, free resources, and Gina's regular newsletter on everything you need to know to become a successful photographer, visit ginamilitia.com.